Hello, and welcome to Live and Improvised. In this episode, we'll be talking about an instrument from Zimbabwe, the mbira. It's an instrument associated with Shona culture. As I described in the last episode, it's a lamellophone, which means it's an instrument um, that creates its sound by vibrating pieces called lamella. Um, basically what it is, it's a small block of wood, um, usually with a small hole cut in the bottom right. Wrap your pinky around so you can hold it in that hand. There's usually two rows of keys. They're sort of staggered, um, so if you think about those sort of like an organ with multiple manuals. One of the major differences, though, between the imbira and an organ or someplace like a, something like a keyboard is that with a lot of Western instruments, the keys are arranged low to high. Whereas with the imbira, they're staggered. So you'd have, for example, a C in the left hand, a D in the right hand, an E in the left hand, an F in the right hand and so on, back and forth. So instead of basically moving one hand to play the lower notes of a scale, you'd alternate fingers. The instrument is often placed inside a large gourd resonator called a dese. And basically what that does is it helps amplify the sound. It's a very quiet instrument, and it typically when the instruments are being played, um, there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of, there's a lot of extraneous noise. And a dese essentially helps amplify the sound. So I'm going to play you an example by Stella Chueze, um, who's one of the premier mbira players in Zimbabwe and around the world. She's also one of the handful of, of really well-known female mbira players. I'm going to play the example first, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. Thank you. 
So Mbira music, by and large, is organized around two major parts, the Gushara and the Kunsinira. The Kushara part is typically the very first part that you hear. It translates literally as lead or a start, and usually it's the piece, uh, the, the line of music around which the rest of the piece is organized. So usually, again, the first thing you hear will be the Kushara part. The second part is the Kutsanira, um, which translates as exchange or a refrain part. It usually follows the Kushara part, so it's usually the second Imbira part that you hear enter, and it combines with the first. And they don't necessarily combine in the same way that a lot of Western music combines. For example, with a, a harmonic part and a melody above it, it's not as vertical. A lot of this music is horizontal. What happens is that the two different parts interact. Sometimes they line up rhythmically, sometimes they don't. But you can still follow those two different parts and trace those two musical lines together through the piece. I'm going to play that same example again so you can hear um, the very first part, the Kushara, and then the Kunsinira. Not only can you hear them based on when they enter, but they're also mixed fairly clearly. Um, the Kushara part is mixed to the left, and the Kunsinira is mixed to the right. instruments that you heard in that is an instrument called the hosho. It's a pair of gourds that are hollowed out and there's rattles inside them. Um, so something like corn or sand or rocks or something like that. And it creates a very distinctive sh-sh-sh-sh-sh-sh sort of sound. And because there's a pair of them, typically what happens is that they are placed on every beat. So it's one e uh, two e uh, three e uh, four e uh. But there's also some ambiguity with that. You can hear the strong beat as the first beat, one e uh, two e uh, three e uh. Or you can also hear the smaller beats leading up to that, e uh, one e uh, two e uh, three. So let me demonstrate the difference between that. So you have a very strong one e uh, two e uh, one e uh, two e uh, which very clearly exemplifies where the beat is. Or you can also have the reverse pattern, which leads up to the beat, e uh, one e uh, two e uh, three. So it creates sort of this push. And actually what's happening with the whole show is that there's actually a push and pull between the two gourds in your two different hands. One is slightly ahead of the beat, one is slightly behind the beat. Um, so it creates this sense of rhythmic ambiguity. Let me play you another example. And you can hear the whole show very clearly in this example. Hosho are loud, um, they're meant to they're meant to carry, they're meant to generate a large volume of sound. So if Mbira players aren't careful when they're recording, sometimes you have entirely too much Hosho in the recording. And one of the things that the Hosho does is it creates essentially a cloaking sound. And what that means is it basically it helps encourage participation. 
We'll talk some more about this in the next episode when we talk about imperial music. Um, but the short version is that the music is participatory. People are, are meant to join in, singing, dancing, sometimes even playing the instruments along with the imperial players. What the Hosho does is it basically creates this cloaking effect. It helps encourage people to participate. And so if you're not going to stand out when you begin singing or you begin clapping or you begin playing, you're much more likely to sort of trickle in feel invited to join in and begin playing. Whereas if, if your entrance is going to stand out very sharply, there's a lot more pressure on you to come in at exactly the right time. So it's a very fundamentally different aesthetic. It's a function, fundamentally different way of uh, conceiving of music, as we'll talk about in the next episode. One of the other things that the Hosho does in terms of this cloaking effect is that it aligns with a lot of the, the bottle caps or the beads or the shells that are on the Deze and on the Imbira itself to create this larger buzzy timbre. So you can contrast this pretty clearly with, with Western ideals of timbre, which are very much modeled off of 18th century opera. A full, bright, clear, penetrating sound. It's very precise. You can tell distinctly, for example, in a larger texture, which instruments are playing, which instruments aren't playing. Even when they're blending together, the goal is having that individual individuality of sound. Whereas with this, a buzzing timbre is, is much more appropriate for the participatory style of music. The third function of the Hosho is it creates this rock steady pulse around which you can orient people when they're dancing and they're singing. It makes it very unambiguous where the major beats are. Let me play you another example. are usually in the Shona language. So as a general rule, unless you speak Shona, you probably won't understand what's being sung. If it is any consolation, a lot of times Shona speakers have difficulty understanding or at least interpreting the text. Any of the texts are in what's called deep Shona. If you think about proverbs or old expressions that don't necessarily make a lot of sense but that have been repeated, it's like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, those sorts of things. So we'll set the content of the vocals aside um, simply because I, I don't know Shona. We can talk some about the three different singing styles. The third is the Kudakatera, which is a verbal style. They're poetic texts, sometimes they're fragmentary, sometimes they're improvised. That's heard typically less often. Two major styles that you hear are the horo, which is high, very strong, very raspy sort of vocal, which sounds like this.
low chant like it's soft and wavering and it sounds like this <laughs> In addition to the register, so the higher the low aspect of the, the vocal styles, there's another way you can distinguish the horo from the mahonera. Um, the horo, which is the high sounding style, typically sings a text in shona, whereas the mahonera are using vocables. Um, so if you're thinking about fa la 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 la, the fa la 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 it doesn't mean anything. It's just um, it's just a sound um, that you can use to help to help yourself sing. There is a fourth type of vocalization you hear. It's typically a uulation. It's basically a way for the audience to interact with the singers, with the musicians, to let them know that they're listening very intensely, to let them know that they're they're supporting and encouraging their music-making efforts. So one of the things that happens with both the vocals and the instrumental part is that the musical line is broken between two voices. So, for example, imagine yourself if you're reading the sentence, Imbira music sounds cool. Now imagine you were reading that sentence with someone else and you were alternating every other word. Mbira music sounds cool. That is essentially a, a short example of a hocket. What it does is it breaks one musical line, da-da-da-da-da, between two voices. Um, the Mbira is set up to sort of play music in hockets, and oftentimes what happens is that the vocal set, this happens as well. So it creates a couple of different effects. First of all, it's a timbre effect. It changes the sound color of the musical line. If you were reading that same example sentence, Mbira music sounds cool by yourself, it would have one sound. If you were reading it with somebody else, but if somebody else was reading it, they would have a different sound because their voice sounds different. If, they're, if you're breaking it up and alternating words, that's going to create a different color for the line. And if you break it up and alternate, so if you start on the first word instead of the second word, for example, that creates a totally different timbral effect. So it's a very small way, um, it's a very simple way, but of creating small but really subtle and powerful differences in timbre and sound. One of the other effects that the Hawkeyes create is it's a spatial effect. It sort of throws the musical line between two different places. So you physically hear the line coming from two different bodies in two different points in space. This is something that kind of gets lost a little in recordings, um, but what oftentimes happens is that um, the engineers will pan the voices so you hear one coming out of one ear and one coming out of another. Let me play you an example.
So something else that's really important within beer music are the rhythms. A lot of times the tempos are fairly upbeat and they're fairly fast. A lot of times this is dance music or ceremonial music for a large group of people. The tempos are typically fairly steady. You know, even if the performance is, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes long, even if there's a gradual acceleration, typically the tempo is the same. Contrast this with a lot of Western music. If musicians are playing for nine or ten minutes, oftentimes they're varying tempo. They're trying to create more contrast. A lot of the rhythms have a 12-8 rhythmic feel. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, da 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 da. So you still have that main division into four. One, two, three, four. But each of those beats is broken into into three groups. Da 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 da. One of the magical things about beer music, one of the things that I find so fascinating about the music, are the cross beats. Um, so these are rhythms that sounds. Some of them will sound like they're in triple meter. Other parts will sound like they're in duple meter. So this is hard to demonstrate and it's hard to do in a podcast because this is kind of a visual thing. When I'm teaching classes, it's, I usually have students like tapping and drumming and those sorts of things, but we're gonna try it. One of the ways that I learned a lot of these cross beats, I learned them from drummers in music school, so there's um, some vulgarity, so I guess don't play this around children. One of the common cross beats is two against three. Da, 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 and you can demonstrate this on your own if you're tapping so it's together, right, left, right, together, right, left, right, together, right, left, right, one, two, and three, one, two, and three, one, two, and three, one, two, and three. So if you're keeping that, that rhythm going, and if you're doing the same things with the same hands that I was doing, so it's together, right, left, right, together, right, left, right, the left is, is tapping in two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. The left hand is capping in two, and the right hand is capping in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So that's a very simple example of a cross beat. You basically have a larger structural beat, and then some rhythmic interplay. Some parts, again, are in triple, some parts are in duple. There's another example, it's four against three, which is more typical of Mbira music. The expression I learned is, um, we'll say hecking for the, for the, for the vulgarity in case there are children, um, but pass the hecking butter. So pass the hecking butter, pass the hecking butter. So it's together, right, left, da, 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 sorry, I can't tap and do this at the same time, but so you get together, and it's right, left, right, left, right, left, together. Da, 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 pass the hecking butter, pass the hecking butter, pass the hecking butter. So this is one of the things that, again, makes Mbira music sound magical because parts of it are going to sound like they're in two, parts of it are going to sound like in three, sometimes the beats are lining up, sometimes they're not, sometimes it sounds like there's two totally different tempos or meters going on at the same time. All of this, you can orient yourself around the ho-show, the en1, en2, en1, en2, because that's going to be very clearly articulating where each beat is. So if you're ever confused about where you are, listen for the ho-show, and then you can sort of expand your awareness out to the Kushara, the lead part, and the Quinceanera part, to hear how they're sort of kaleidoscoping around one another. Let me play you a couple examples of this crossbeat rhythm. Oh, 
So one of the other things I find so fascinating about imperial music is the improvisation. Improvisation will occur within the both the vocal and the instrumental parts, and it's very interactive. Um, it's similar to jazz in that sense. Sometimes if the kushara player or the lead singer is, is playing something and then varying it, the quinceanera player and the other vocalists will interact with them, will change what they're singing or playing based on the, on the feedback. So again, sort of like in a jazz combo, if you have someone who's playing a solo, the drummer and the bassist will often will change what they're playing. They're not going to play exactly the same thing throughout the whole time. They'll change what they're playing based on the feedback they're getting from the soloist. This happens with imbira music, but it's a type of intensive variation. So there's a shorter amount of variation, and it's happening over a smaller amount of material. So again, if you can contrast this with jazz, uh, like a sort of a, a general template for jazz, you have everybody playing the head, the main theme of the piece, each person playing fundamentally different and sometimes radically different variations, improvisations on that theme, and then they come back. With imbira music, they're playing smaller versions, much smaller, so they're basically keeping the core material the same, but sometimes maybe they're shifting things, sometimes they're adding a melodic part, sometimes they're adding a ululation in response to what the, the lead singer did. So it's a much more subtle and nuanced of improvisation, but it's the sort of thing that over a long span of time becomes almost this bit of performance art, because it's never really different in any sort of fundamental or meaningful way, but it's also constantly different. It's sort of like watching a, a river flow. It's always the same thing, you know, it's like water over rocks, but it's also magical if you watch it and sort of just let yourself get sort of swept away by the moment-by-moment moment example of this. So let me play a slightly longer example to give you a sense of this type of improvisation.
one other note I want to point out texturally about Imbira music. We've talked some about how this music is essentially polyphonic. The vocal and the instrumental lines are fairly distinct, they're fairly independent, but something you'll hear a great deal is a call and response, and you especially hear this with the vocals. You'll either hear the lead singer sing something, and then it's directly imitated or it's varied by either another singer or by another group of vocalists. This is one of those fundamentally African ways of arranging and organizing music. It's difficult to generalize about any any musical style, much less a continent's worth of musical style, much less, you know, the continent as large as Africa with as, as varied musical traditions. But something you typically hear in a lot of African musics, especially sub-Saharan musics, are call and response. And so I say tomato, you say potato, tomato, potato, that sort of thing. It's a terrible example, but you get the idea. So with that call and response, it gives not only the, the lead singer a way of judging the energy level, the interest, the excitement of the audience, but it lets the audience, other singers, other players, other dancers respond to them. Again, because this music is participatory, call and response is a fundamentally sound structural way of engaging with the audience, of getting feedback from them, of creating this really um, this sort of rolling ball of energy during performances that can carry you through, through a lot of times these performances will last hours and hours. So again, you'll hear call and response a great deal. It's different on recordings because you lack that, that energy, that interpersonal interaction, but you'll hear that structure all the time in Imbira music. Here's an example. structures that are being used and the larger structures they are typically based on four phrases of 12 fast pulses each these large 48 pulse cycles all that's being left behind we also haven't really addressed any of the the social or functional or spiritual aspect of this music a lot of this music is played ceremonies called bria where you typically have imbira players social players dancers singers gathering at the home of someone and it's a way of that this music is functioning 
through a spirit medium as a way of contacting dead ancestors, dead relatives. If you're interested in more about that aspect of the music, um, there's a great website called imbira.org, which is a great nonprofit. It has a lot more information about the spiritual and cultural aspects of the, of the Shona culture, how this Mbira music fits in that. I highly encourage you to check that out. There's also several good books. Paul Berliner has an excellent book about Mbira music, and that's probably the one I would recommend. It's an academic book, but it's incredibly readable, and it's really one of the first books that helped bring Mbira music to a wider Western audience. So that's the one I would start with. I'm going to play you out with a little bit more Mbira music. Hopefully you understand a little bit more about the structure and sound of this music. Enjoy! <laughs> 